This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Culture and Everyday Life podcast produced by the Elphinstone Institute at the University of Aberdeen. The Elphinstone Institute is a centre for the study of ethnology, folklore and ethnomusicology with a research and public engagement remit covering the northeast and north of Scotland. Through interaction with researchers and practitioners, this podcast explores cultural phenomena in everyday life. So I think it's time to introduce our guest, um, Professor, I believe, Emeritus at uh, Loughborough. Um, an interesting array of work that he's done over the years, um, interested in um, quite a broad range of subjects, um, including um, imperialism, theatrical history, um, an interesting study on music in the workplace and the effect that is that has on, on people when they're actually at work and whether it has the effect that... Uh, that the people who um, introduce music in the workplace hope that it will have. Sometimes it doesn't, it turns out. Uh, although in the case of dairy farms, it does increase milk yields to have music in the milking parlor. Um, uh, but tonight on the fascinating topic of music and memory, and part of the music and memory um, series of workshops and lectures that we've run as part of Ian's AHRC, uh, grant to uh, explore music and memory in connection in particular with the North Atlantic Fiddle Convention running as a theme of, of workshops and concerts between the two conventions, the last one in Cape Breton and the one next year here in Aberdeen. So, without further ado, Michael. Thank you very much for that uh, in introduction. Um, I know that um, in this uh, series of uh, lectures and workshops you've had contributions from uh, cognitive psychology, digital humanities, and performance studies. Um, one of the interesting things about those contributions is that they're all sort of adjacent to the main field that I've worked in for the last 35 years, which is media and communications. The only one of those that I've had any difficulty with, really, is digital humanities. Um, and I'll just say a little bit about that. I first came across digital humanities at a conference in Sydney several years ago, and everybody was abuzz with it. It was the, the brand new thing. But nobody could really explain or define what um, digital humanities was all, all about. And nobody seemed to be inclined to compare it with the use of computational methods of uh, inquiry and analysis that we've been using in the social sciences for a, a lot longer than they have in the humanities. Since then I've found out more about it um, um, and feel that I have an understanding of digital humanities but it still seems to me a rather kind of vaguely defined field and it seems to mean different things to different people. And that, does tr that is true, of course, also of memory studies, although perhaps to a, a lesser extent, because memory studies does have a more specific focus um, uh, of, of inquiry and analysis. Um, but it is nevertheless still the case that it means different things to different people, and uh, that is part of the excitement of these new emergent fields, but also part of the difficulty of working uh, within them. 
I'm not going to be talking about um, memory studies as a whole, but I, I will situate some of what I'm going to say in the still emergent field of, uh, of memory studies. What I'm going to talk about is the relationship of music and uh, memory and the significance of music uh, for remembering. But a, an initial point I want to make is that most of the music that we hear is very, very quickly forgotten. And of course that's especially the case where music's just in the background in a department store or a restaurant and so on where you're not concentrating on it, on it, on it at all, it's being used for other purposes. Um, and contrary to that, we all know, I'm sure you've all got experience of how, um, what, what, how music can, whether it's a, uh, a tune or, or a song, how it can strongly evoke the past and make us feel intensely that we're back there, back then, in some, the same conversation that we had years and years ago. We might all staring at the, the high rolls and hollows in a, in a, in a local valley landscape that we used to f uh, frequent. And inverting the power of song in that, in invoking the power of song in that respect is, uh, it's interesting to compare it with, uh, with written prose. Whether that's in a prose poem, a piece of literary fiction, whatever it might be. And songs do seem to be perhaps the most powerful means of, of evoking uh, a memory of some incident, some particular moment or particular person in the past. Um, more, more powerful than uh, written prose. And I'm not quite sure why that is. Is it the sort of combination of, in a, in, in a song for instance, of rhyme and rhythm, of texture and timbre? Um, and if, if that is the case, then at least in sort of partial alignment that, with that, we need to remember that particular songs and tunes, um, because of their importance to us, exist both in time in specific moments when the memory occurs, but also over time um, and the significance that they accrue um, over the, uh, the, the course of uh, many years, even many decades. As we rove back and forward in our memory, sifting our memories for, particular, uh, for the particular values and points of significance that they might have in a, in a present that's ever-changing. And in a research uh, project that's, that lasted uh, three and more years, including the writing up of it uh, and so on, and I'm going to be talking about that uh, more later on, but uh, myself and my co-researcher, co uh, Emily Keatley, uh, distinguished between three uh, key overlapping stages uh, in our experience of the relations between uh, music and memory. I'll set them out uh, in, in, in this stage. These are overlapping stages, not unilinear um, in, in any fashion. But first of all, we need to make music a resource for remembering in some way or another. Um, and there's both an interior and now, of course, an exterior dimension to that in the uh, modern period. Um, we have to remember certain pieces of music, but we can also use particular pieces of technology to remind ourselves to relive a particular uh, experience of music. Um, and that's very much part of the um, broader shift from what I call experiences process as opposed to experiences product. 
when you live a particular experience in a present, that is very much experience as a, a, a process. And it's only over the course of time that you shift out particular aspects of that lived experience of the present into um, uh, experience as, as product. And in relation to music, and again, think of both the interior and the exterior dimensions of this, that involves creating, storing, listening and sharing music as a mnemonic resource. If we then move on to the second stage, that involves uh, using music and its associations with the past to help establish durable uh, units of meaning and a coherent pattern of, of narrative over the, the life course. Um, and those music-laden uh, meanings and patterns um, then congregate, particularly around uh, the three uh, mnemonic categories of events, people and places. Now why do I say that? Those three categories have come inductively out of all the field work that we conducted on the research project I've um, just referred to, but then seem to be very much confirmed where with reading other uh, people's uh, ethnog ethnography, uh, reading literary fiction, and so on. Those three categories of events, people, and places are the most significant clusters around which um, uh, music associations congregate. And then we move to the third stage. I don't know how I get rid of this thing here, but no. Sorry, that's interfering with your reading of, the, of the, the one at the bottom, but the third stage is perhaps the most significant because it's around the certain memories which have been chosen over the longer, uh, longer period of time um, that uh, key items of significance and value um, uh, are crystallised out of, the, uh, of a longer uh, pattern of experience. And we use those particular moments to help identify uh, ourselves in, in, in time, in, in particular places, in, in, in relation to a, a particular pattern of belonging and so on. So music in that way becomes central to how we bring the past and the present together in a process of, uh, of, of active conjunction with each other. And um, it also becomes the means of uh, what we call um, temporal uh, trans trans transposition and, and connection. Now, of course, those three stages only really work uh, in this way in relation to um, intentional or voluntary memory, actively concerted recollection of particular moments or episodes uh, in the past. And um, just as importantly, music can act as an involuntary uh, catalyst, um, bringing back memories unbidden. Um, when we hear a particular song, um, perhaps by chance when we're listening to a morning talk show, and then you know, a piece of music or song is put on in the interval between the chat and uh, suddenly um, were taken uh, way back into the past in, in, in that, uh, through that process of temporal transposition. And here's an, uh, an example from one of my favorite American novelists, uh, Anne Tyler, uh, in her novel, The Amateur uh, Marriage. Sometimes when the car radio played one of those old songs, 
Are you going to San Francisco was the saddest, so lost and far away sounding. She had to blink back the tears in order to see the road. So you, uh, music has that sort of powerful sense of, uh, of connection. And it can, it create, can create what uh, we call an oral punctum, borrowing the term punctum from Roland Barthes, who only really uh, confines it to our experience of, uh, of photography. It also, punct the punctum can also act in an oral dimension as well. Um, and it's perhaps at its most significant, as it is in relation to the visual spec uh, punctum, that, as, as Bart describes it, when we're grieving for somebody uh, who, who has passed away. And a piece of music that um, might, would be deeply loved by that person is heard by the person who's mourning, mourning uh, and can bring memories hurtling back in a, f a flash fl flood of emotion that only exacerbates the experience of, uh, of loss and abandonment. And here's another uh, car radio example from ethnography instead of literary fiction this time. It's from uh, one of uh, Tia Denora's um, informants. And she spoke of the um, importance of, for her father of uh, Brahms' double concerto which he played as a, a sort of solace when he was uh, separated from his wife during the Second World War. And after her father died, um, Lucy, who was the informant, turned on the radio while she was driving home one evening from uh, choir practice and tuned directly into um, the double concerto. And this is what she said, I just had to stop and some friends were coming behind, you know, and I was in floods of tears. And they said, why didn't you turn it off? And I said, I can't. And it was ages before I could listen to that or anything like it without thinking of him. Now, remembering through music uh, has two major interrelated uh, aspects. Firstly, when we remember through music, we're also remembering the cultural past of that music. That's particularly true, for instance, of, a, of, of specific genres of music, um, particularly if we've lived through the development, gone through the different stages in the de development of a particular genre, whether it's reggae or whatever it might be. But it's also true of the retrospective um, use of music in, um, in certain kinds of programmes that concentrate on a particular decade. Um, and this is Johnny Walker and uh, I put him there because of his uh, programme Sounds of the 70s that uh, is on Radio 2 every uh, Sunday afternoon. That's a typical example of, uh, uh, of that. But secondly, the mnemonic associations are attached to particular historical events or historical periods. Um, Obviously, you know, Vera Lynn's association of the White Cliffs of Dover with the Second World War is a classic example of that. Um, and there's very much a blurred line between um, that acting in a very, very powerful uh, way and the cliched use of that, you know. So, for instance, anything to do with the 20s, you have to have Charleston music in it, you know, and it becomes narrowed down to that particular cliched association and, and other kinds of music that were very predominant at the time then get, uh, get forgotten. Um, 
And from there we can identify two uh, further aspects uh, that's involved in the relationship between music and memory. First of all, music in uh, autobiographical memory, where it can have a deeply personal uh, significance and value for us, but also music in vernacular memory, where it becomes interlinked with particular families, uh, particular uh, communities and, uh, and networks. And here we have to identify two uh, highly important features of music in relation to the modern and late modern periods. There's firstly uh, the market value of music uh, as a uh, commodity. And there's also secondly the spatial and the temporal reliance uh, on technology. Now music, and uh, especially popular music over the, the whole uh, modern period, has become uh, a global market, market commodity. Um, and it's econo in economic terms, uh, music is a commodity just like any other form of popular culture, popular entertainment. And that has very, very uh, wide-ranging uh, implications. But I, I'm not going to talk about them because significantly, I think, in, relation, in the relationship between music and memory, the commodity status of music is actually almost irrelevant. And that's because of um, a too seldom noted um, process of localization, of, of making music our own, despite the, 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 the mass commodity status uh, of that music. Um, in the abstract to uh, this lecture, I referred to the um, the, the widely noted uh, ascription of, of, uh, of a certain song as our song in intimate relationships. Many people um, in relation to that song that we talk about as our song will have heard the song because it's globally distributed uh, as a commodity. And so in that sense it's widely shared. It isn't just our song, it's, uh, it's shared on a much, much on a mass scale. But the affective uh, uh, connections and connotations that that song has within the intimate relationship have overridden all that. Um, they've made the song seem to be uniquely special to that specific intimate uh, relationship, something that's only shared within that relationship. So in making the song uh, their own, the song is in a sense stripped of its commercial dimension. It's transformed into something interpersonally precious um, and far more durable than the, sh the song's short-term or long-term exchange value. And before I turn to um, the music uh, technology and memory, I want to say a little bit more about this um, process of, uh, of making our own, because it, it seems to uh, uh, to us to be uh, absolutely central to vernacular memory and vernacular remembering. It's a form of localization, as, as I've said, um, and it involves constructing local uh, proximate uh, meanings and values out of uh, mass-mediated uh, cultural products, and then using that music to uh, forge um, past-present interconnections that are very specific to us. Um, Within, within particular networks, particular uh, groups, and so on. 
And that process is important for uh, memory studies precisely because it's vital for um, the music memory relationship and because it's very much neglected um, within uh, memory studies. And here I'm going to sort of widen out into the context of that field a little bit because I just want to say briefly something about the context of that uh, neglect. In memory studies as it's developed over the last 20, 30 years or so, the greatest emphasis has been on collective memory, uh, but collective memory not at a vernacular level, but collective memory on a macro uh, social scale. Uh, and it's, it, it's concentrated particularly on collective memory where it's involved spectacular events um, uh, and spectacular ruptures in the everyday uh, pattern and rhythm of life. And the preoccupation has been very much with the hegemonic uh, purposes or consequences of remembering, seeing collective memory as a sort of field uh, of ideological uh, conflict. And that's had um, two major consequences. Um, it, first of all, it's uh, led to a largely negative uh, emphasis on the way in which memory is manipulated. It's also led to an emphasis on painful pasts rather than the way in which the past can heal certain rifts or ruptures within the present. And it's also led to a con uh, uh, an emphasis um, on the, the failures and the flaws of, of public remembering. Um, and the further consequence of that is that um, of that neglect is that uh, it's led to a diminution of attention to what happens in the dynamics between how we remember a specific individuals to collective remembering, remembering on a, a wider social scale. Um, and that that um, that has has also had um, various uh, consequences, which would lead me to say that we need to develop uh, an alternative focus. Obviously collective remembering on a macro social scale is very important. Um, but because it's led to um, a, a neglect of attention to the relationship between individual and collective remembering, that needs to be redressed because that relationship is an abiding issue. Uh, it has to be a, an abiding issue within uh, memory studies. Um, and as I've just said, macro, social, uh, macro scale forms of cultural memory, manipulations of public memory, all those things are important, but they shouldn't necessarily dominate the field. So the personal and the public aspects of memory need to be kept in continual view of each other. And rather than uh, emphasising uh, painful pasts, severe ruptures in um, the fabric of, uh, of, of social memory and so on, we need to ask, what, does, what is remembering well all about? How do we remember well? How do we recognise and define that? And that's something which Emily and I have been giving a, increasing uh, attention to in our uh, more recent work. Um, and in doing that, we, we concentrate very much on the space between individual and collective remembering at a different level to the um, macro social scale which has dominated memory studies, but at the meso level of, um, uh, of mnemonic, mnemonic um, 
uh, interaction. And that interspace is where we define vernacular memory as, as operating, that neglected dimension of remembering what I've been talking about. It's through remembering in that uh, interspace that this process of localization, of making our own, um, occurs. Now, um, to go back to the uh, technological uh, mediation of music, that of course um, began with phonography and radio in the early 20th century. Um, it soon expanded from uh, um, sonic media to, to visual media. The first um, uh, of the talkies, the first, the, the first uh, film with synchronised sound, was um, significantly um, about, uh, was significantly a musical. It was a, the, the jazz singer of 1927, uh, a blackface minstrel song uh, featuring Al Johnson. But then that process uh, continued uh, after the Second World War with the expansion of television uh, and, and so on. And a major consequence of all that is that it's not only allowed um, a much wider uh, mnemonic access uh, to music associated with previous stages in our own uh, autobiographical trajectories, but also to music that's associated uh, with periods which are antecedent to our own lifetime. So that, for instance, if we were born in the late 20th century, um, we might still have memories of the first time we ever heard um, Duke Ellington, Memphis Minnie, um, Billy Holiday, Hank Williams, whoever it might be. So music's past have in that way multiplied much more than I think in any other uh, previous historical period. Uh, and so have our memories uh, of them. And that's not only broadened our own sonic uh, horizons, it's also changed um, how we conceive of those sonic horizons. Because although um, song in uh, vernacular memory has um, been passed between generations uh, through oral transmission for a very, very long time, how we now revisit and remember music's past is very much a product um, of modernity. And what that means is that, for instance, we can hear exactly what was recorded on November the 23rd, 1936, when Robert Johnson on the left-hand side there uh, sang the song, Come On In My Kitchen. Or a year later, on October the 26th, 1937, when the Kentucky fiddler Bill Stepp played this splendid tune, Bonaparte's re re Retreat, and I'll just give you a little uh, sample of that. tune short but um, apart from oral uh, transmission and 
uh, the written score, of course. Um, music's no longer um, limited to what people themselves uh, can remember. And for me, the advent of all these different forms of, uh, of, um, of technological reproduction and reproduction of, of music should be, a, for, I think, a, a source of continual wonder and appreciation. Um, and I've always been puzzled why that's not the case. Uh, is it the fact that we just become complacent? Is it the fact that these means of technological reproduction change so rapidly? Um, uh, and I, I don't have an answer to that, and it would be interesting if anybody else can, can contribute to that. But it, to me, it's still um, an amazing thing that, that that is now possible. And I said earlier on that I'd talk uh, more about the specific uh, research project on music and memory that I've been involved with over the past uh, five or six years um, with this uh, colleague of mine at um, uh, Loughborough University, Emily Keatley. And the starting point uh, for uh, that project was the lack of uh, any ethnographic work on the relationship between uh, music and memory in everyday life. So I just want to say a little bit uh, about it. It was a three-year research project where we were actually Im involved in the research. And it focused on media in everyday life and the, the various ways in, the, in which music acts either as a vehicle or, or, or catalyst uh, of remembering. And we conducted a dozen uh, pilot interviews to begin with. Um, and then on the basis of those, um, drew up a, a, a set of questions that we wanted to interview people about um, and interviewed over a hundred uh, people both in uh, as single individuals, in small groups uh, and through focus groups as well. And that was then supplemented through a mass observation uh, call that yielded uh, at roughly 150, 160 uh, responses. And it was through the pilot interviews that we, the two most salient media of remembering in everyday life um, became very evident. Uh, photography, self-made photography, um, and, uh, and popular music, well, or, or music as a whole, sorry. Um, and also as a, um, in, 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 within the project, we uh, developed a new method in the social sciences, which is the, the self-interview. Um, there are various advantages to the self-interview, particularly when you're researching memory, and that is that people have access themselves to the pause button. If they're struggling to remember something, if a particular memory is so potent that, that, they, that they're emotionally overcome, they can use the pause button and go back to it uh, later on. And one of the first interviews um, I conducted uh, in, in the project was with a man um, who, who was about 70 years old and he, he had lost his wife uh, 10 years previously. Um, and prior to the interview I asked him to select half a dozen photographs that he could talk to at the beginning of the interview to, to get him going uh, in talking about the importance of photography in his life in relation to the past. And as soon as he started talking he burst into tears and I offered to stop the interview, um, possibly go back to it another time, but he insisted on carrying on. And eventually he over, overcame his emotions and uh, did manage to, to, to conduct the interview. But it became very, very clear 
that how acutely he still missed this person ten years later. And that's not true only in relation to the photographs he has of her, but also her music. She was a very ardent music lover. He pulled out a drawer and he had a whole row of her CDs in exactly the same formation. He didn't want to disturb them, they were part of the way he was remembering her. So the self-interview we, we started to devise as a method for overcoming that kind of restriction, that kind of, uh, of problem. And then the key purposes of the project were a comparative study of these two most salient media of remembering in everyday life. Um, and the value of that is that it gave us a dual focus. Obviously, the, the, those two media appeal to different senses, the sight and to, to, uh, and to hearing. Um, but they seem to complement each other, despite their manifold differences, in all sorts of different ways. And that people were deliberately using both in order to um, uh, build up a, 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 a better set of tools than they would have had with just one medium or, or the other. And the period in which we were searching, of course, also coincided with the um, shift from analogue to digital. And that was true both in relation to um, photography, with people stopping the compilation of family albums and putting everything on a memory stick or whatever, uh, and also in relation to, to music and the different ways of accessing music, storing music, relating to music and so on. And the theoretical framework that we developed in uh, our first book um, was the concept of the uh, mnemonic imagination. And then we have gone on to apply that uh, concept in the second and third books of uh, the trilogy that we've written, trying to show how pieces of the past don't exist in separate kinds of ways but are sewn together through their associations with uh, music and photography, both in life, personal life narratives and in vernacular memory. So I'll just say a little bit about this concept because it runs through the whole of uh, the three books that um, we've written. Uh, about media and memory in everyday life. And it was very much our starting point that we wanted to challenge the sort of everyday opposition between memory and imagination. Um, they seem to be working very, very much in concert with, with each other in the way in which people were talking about the significance of either photography or music um, for remembering events, people, places in, in, in everyday life. Um, so the widespread con conception that they're utterly distinct faculties or, or processes with memory confined to the realm of experience and imagination to the realm of fantasy untrammeled by truth seemed to us one that really stood in need of, uh, of, of, of critique. Now of course that isn't to say that memory and imagination uh, are simply one and the same you, using different names as masks of a covert uh, commonality, but they do interact with each other, <coughs> they cross-fertilise. Memory feeds into and fuels our imagination and imaginatively we connect together all the different kind of memories that are uh, floating around in our minds, in our everyday conversations and so on, and we plot them into different narrative uh, sequences and structures. And that process of interaction is a generative one, or over the course of time, a regenerative one. 
it fosters a mode of relating. It fosters a mode of relating to the past that exceeds the separate capacities of either memory on the one hand, imagination on the other, and turns the past into a fertile uh, resource. So the the mnemonic imagination coalesces out of the productive tension that exists between uh, memory and imagination. And as a result of that, is able to uh, uh, arrive at a creative uh, synthesis of past experience and, and present needs and understandings of that experience. Particularly thinking ahead to the sort of future we want to uh, sail into. So the mnemonic imagination is the mechanism through which those cross-temporal interanimations inter in our lives are brought into being. The memory reactivating uh, imagination and imagination stimulated by what memory can offer up. So when we bring pieces of the past into uh, active relation, um, we don't do that strictly uh, through memory alone. Um, we don't regard the past as simply akin uh, to what we imagine. It's the productive tension between what we remember and what we, how we imaginatively use what we remember, which is uh, significant for the mnemonic imagination. So sorting through and synthesizing uh, all those different fragments of the past which memory bequeaths to us is, is what is significant to us uh, over time in, in relation to our own life narrative and so on. Um, and the chief mechanism for that, as, as I'm saying, is the, um, the mnemonic imagination, aligning our memories with our particular concerns and knowledge and feelings in the present, and identifying the paths that we've taken and the identity that we've developed as we've moved along uh, those, those paths. So the mnemonic imagination is um, the, the chief mechanism through which um, we maintain a sense of continuity often over some you know, quite difficult transitions and turning points uh, in our lives. So the concept refers to the way in which we uh, qualify, adapt, refine and reorder past experience into qualitatively new and ongoing understandings of our lives and the lives of those around us as they're continually moving on, continually changing and our conceptions of them are continually uh, changing. So the mnemonic imagination isn't simply confined to personal experience or what uh, seems to us to be um, of primary significance to us in our personal lives. Personal relations with the past are situated within and informed by networks of social relations. And that makes individual and collective memory conceivable only through their multiple interse intersections. Uh, and as I said, that's, that's the kind of meso level of interaction between individual and collective remembering we've been very much concentrating on because of its neglect uh, in memory studies. So for that and other reasons the concept of mnemonic imagination embraces not only our own experience but also what you could call second-hand experience whether that derives from a tale told by a friend or something we hear on television uh, a, a narrative we might hear through a popular song or whatever. Both those forms of experience, first-hand and second-hand, are key resources for developing a sense of, of who we are, both individually and collectively, with mediated forms of remembering being at times just as important to us as situated forms of remembering. 
And the mnemonic imagination helps us to relate our own memory with the memory of, of others, whether they're both whether they're either proximate to us or distant from us. So the basis of any empathic uh, engagement with other people's memories comes through um, that the engagement of the, uh, the mnemonic imagination with them. So here are examples of our engagement with the two technologies of remembering. Within those always shared frameworks or schemata of, uh, of remembering, we develop purposive uses of, of both photography and music as uh, key mnemonic resources in everyday life. It might be the photos we put on the mantelpiece in the family album or whatever. Pieces of music that we connect very closely with particular friends, particular relationships. But we also regard um, photographs and recorded music as encapsulating for us certain elements of our experience that help mark our passage through, through life, that contribute to our sense of, uh, of selfhood, that help us uh, tell stories about ourselves, our families and social groups to which we belong. And, th and thirdly, we value uh, images and music for the ways in which they spontaneously seem to melt time, as in that process of temporal transposition, generate a sudden and uh, precipitous sense of that temporal uh, transposition. Um, and here's an example um, from, from our field work. One woman we interviewed, and the song is by a particular uh, band, which became predominantly uh, associated for her with uh, generic, not specific memories, but generic memories of childhood holidays in Wales. She was called Lisa, and she, when we interviewed her, was a married woman in her mid-30s. And she said, when I was really young, we used to go on holidays with, well, they weren't my uh, auntie and uncle, they were my parents' best friends, so I'd sort of grown up with them. And they had two children, and we used to go and stay in a cottage on a, on a farm in Wales. And we always used to listen to the Beach Boys, like the whole time we were there. This would also happen on the journey. So you can imagine what the weather, the, the weather, uh, so you, and you could guarantee that the weather would always be crap. And so listening to the Beach Boys was kind of like, we know the weather is going to be rubbish, but it doesn't matter. So if ever I listen to the Beach Boys, it just makes me, uh, takes me straight back to going to Wales when I was eight or nine, especially to, to being in the car on the way there. And Lisa also went um, on some holidays to Wales later in her childhood, but with her own family. Um, and she told us about a much enjoyed activity that um, they engaged in, um, her father and the other children who were uh, in the family. When they first arrived at their holiday uh, destination, a holiday cottage that they always hired year after year. And that is encapsulated in the, um, the hymn Jerusalem by uh, William Blake in Sir Hubert Parry's uh, famous uh, arrangement of it. And this, this hearing that, or singing that, uh, was like a kind of um, a vocal beacon lighting up her memory. This is what she said. At the back of the cottage there was a huge hill, and so you could walk out the gate uh, of the cottage, walk across the path, and then there was the hill. And it was really, really big. And on the first day, we, when we got to the cottage, me and my dad, Michael, Seth, Jeff, Sarah and Josh, who we used to go with, we always used to hike to the top of the hill 
and it would take forever. And then we'd get to the top of the hill, and my mum and Auntie Pauline would be sitting in the cottage drinking gin and tonic <laughs> and watching us walk up the big hill. And then the thing that we had to do was when we got to the top, we all had to sing Jerusalem really loudly to see if they could hear us at the bottom of the hill. We'd take the binoculars and, and they would wave to us if they could hear us singing to it. So you can imagine how they had to belt it out. It was ridiculous, but that's always something that uh, um, has come to stay with me, always. Whenever I hear Jerusalem, I just imagine standing on the top of this huge hill in Wales, belting it out at the top of our voices. I want to now give you an example from um, a couple that I got to know through uh, university, Helen and Michael. And this time I'll, I'll play you the music first and then tell you uh, about its uh, mnemonic significance. Again, I'll have to cut it short, I'm afraid, but I'll give you the opening. I think it's paused. Yeah, I think it's just playing. Thanks. trying to cut it short, but this is what um, Helen uh, said of, uh, of that piece of music, the Hildegard of, uh, of Bingham Collection, A Feather on the Breath of God. It was introduced by Helen to her husband, Michael, and she said it was one of our very favourite recordings, and then an early CD in our collection. And after Michael uh, died, Helen heard this track by chance on the radio one morning. Vivid memories uh, came back. Uh, flooding back to her. She said it's inevitable that I would suddenly hear a piece of music that forcibly revives a memory and can reduce me to tears and create a physical ache in my chest. The term broken heart, it feels more than just words at times. And that, but uh, very significantly, Helen also links that moment uh, and the conjugal memories that are associated with it, with another memory which she told us about, one deriving from her initial en uh, encounter of the album. She said, I heard it first at the house of a friend, um, and I, I'd, uh, of a friend of a friend. I'd never met her before and I knew nothing of her, but when we arrived she had this recording playing and I was bowled over. I rang her the next day for details, but that day, um, <coughs> I can't read what it is. The, the news of the death of uh, the Labour leader, John Smith, had, uh, had been announced. And I was upset and I actually cried on the phone. And she too was, was sad about it. So that shows how, uh, the mem how memories of the, the same uh, piece of music um, can encompass different uh, scales of remembering. One that's very personal and local, one which is relating to a national uh, public figure.
one that's situated, one that's mediated, but both linked together. In the first case, uh, through grief, in the second, through empathy with somebody else's uh, personal loss. And it was after she'd lost Michael and she was grieving very intensely that she then related that back to uh, the memory of, uh, of, 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 of somebody else who had passed away, um, the Labour leader John Smith. Um, and it started to take Helen out of herself to help her move on. And I know moving on is a very uh, trite fr uh, phrase, particularly in relation to such intense experiences, grieving and mourning. But in this case, the first real signs of it seemed to be happening uh, through the interlinking of those two different kinds of memory of the single, the same piece of music. And another example of music's uh, centrality in, in memories of close relations comes from um, a female archivist in Nottingham who was looking back to, uh, from the age of 40 to the one song that uh, stood out in her memory from her uh, early childhood in Krief, um in Scotland, of course. And this is the story of her grandmother um, singing Brahms' lullaby, lullaby to her uh, as she lay in bed as a young girl. This is what she said uh, to us. She said, I can picture myself in the lower bed of the, uh, of the bunk beds I shared with my sister and, and my grand stroke of my hair and singing this lullaby. When I was seven, and by then she'd moved with her parents to live in East Coker in, in, in Somerset, she gave me a jewellery box for my birthday, and when the lid was lifted, it had a small ballerina pirouetting in front of the mirror to the tune of Brahms Lullaby. I still have that jewellery box, and it still works. The memories it evokes are strong and clear, uh, never sad. And the final example I want to uh, give you comes from um, uh, a 32-year-old woman who's lived in England uh, 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 for over 20 years during the period of her uh, adolescence and uh, early uh, adulthood. She was born in England but she came with her uh, parents to England at the age of, of 13. She's called Kia Kapoor. Well, that's the pseudonym that we've given her. And it, Kia Kapoor uh, exemplifies many of the problems which um, uh, second-generation uh, Asian uh, migrants living in the West seem to uh, encounter when they're caught in the sort of crossrip between two different <coughs> sets of cultural values, attitudes and uh, expectations. And the consequence of, of, of being caught between cultures in that way for, for Kia uh, has been uh, an abiding turbulent uh, conflict with her parents, and particularly uh, her mother, and an, an abiding, laborious struggle to come into her own, uh, to become her own uh, person. And that struggle has involved uh, coming to terms with all the memories that she has now of being an undutiful uh, daughter. Um, and Kia's trying to remember the difficult legacy that all those memories uh, en entail by developing an artistic identity as a professional uh, photographer. And our extended case study of her f mainly focuses on that, uh, on that process. But her difficult negotiation of the past isn't um, uh, done entirely through uh, photography. And in the example I'm going to give you, she speaks of trying to counteract her strict uh, upbringing. Um, 
and her antagonistic feelings to, towards uh, her mother by making over um, a miscellaneous album of traditional uh, Indian uh, songs that was purchased by her mother when they were last uh, in India together. Um, and that's, of course, um, where uh, Kia's extended family still live, and they were, they were visiting that extended family to, together. This is what Kia said about it. She said, I renamed the album Mum India 2007. And I did that because I directly associated it with her. She'd bought it and played it, uh, and it blends in with a time when everything seemed better, when time was trouble-free. I took the CD because it was a few days before she was going to fly home and I was about to go off on my internship. I knew I was, going, I was going to be a different person when I got back. I remember feeling closer to her during that trip, very different to when we were in England and just at loggerheads all the time. Later, even though we'd been through uh, that experience of bonding in India, once we were back in England, it all started to go back that way again. Nothing but conflict. So when I hear those songs, I think of that time in India. And God, you know, the life I've always really wanted. But it doesn't really exist, at least not here in England. It's only there in glimpses. So the life that uh, Kira's uh, always wanted might only uh, exist in, in glimpses, but those glimpses are very uh, important to her. They help put in place what has never been in place. Um, when, uh, particularly when she's uh, most needed it. So it's as if she's trying to reenact the past by parading what she feels is missing from it. And in doing that, uh, what she's doing is using her mnemonic imagination to bring the past and the present into a different cross-temporal relationship to the one that they uh, otherwise have. So those glimpses of what might have been possible um, only find uh, any kind of definite form in her uh, mnemonic imagination and, of course, in, in her art. But it's through that uh, imagining um, that the possibility of something different uh, becomes very apparent uh, to her. And it's also in that space, that, um, that symbolic space that she's created, um, that her own maternal feelings, her longing to be uh, a mother and have a child of her own, are now uh, nurtured. And as she puts it herself, there are no plans, but there are hopes. Now, the last aspect uh, of the memory uh, spectrum that I want to talk about um, before I, I, I draw to a close is um, the, the, the realm of uh, nostalgia. Now, nostalgia is a very distinctive modality of remembering, and it connects very closely with the evocative uh, quality of, or power of, of music. Uh, it's also felt uh, it's also manifested in very uh, diverse ways, but unfortunately the term nostalgia is usually used in a, uh, a pejorative and, and, and negative sense. Um, and I think that's uh, really uh, quite uh, misleading. So those uncritical, superficial, celebratory images of the past are only one form of, uh, of nostalgia in its modern uh, temporalised forms is not uh, amenable to any singular or hard and fast uh, definition. And at the very least, I think we, make, we need to make 
a, a, a twofold, a very broad but twofold uh, distinction. First of all, we need to um, uh, identify manipulative uh, uses of the appeal to nostalgia, and that's what Emily and I call processes of uh, retrotyping, which become, you know, very manifest in forms of advertising and promotional culture more generally. And this, this, to distinguish that from uh, critical uses of the nostalgic impulse for the sake of creative renewal in the present and the realisation of, um, of new uh, possibilities in the future. And we, we identify or conceptualise nostalgia in, in this particular way. It's a, a bringing together of three key uh, components, loss, lack and longing. And in critical forms of nostalgia, all those components, those three components are in place and they act actively in relation uh, to each other. So there's a deepening sense of, uh, of loss, then goes hand in hand with the growing realisation of the present being lacking in some serious manner, such as a sense of certainty or, or stability. And the past then becomes a source or measure of that lack. And out of that process is generated the longing to overcome um, uh, or redress the current deficiency for the sake of a, of a different uh, future. With retrotyping, on the on the other hand, the critical realization of what's been lost and what and what is lacking is something that's con considerably played down, if not cast aside. And the sense of longing for what is idealistically uh, portrayed as the past or some element of the, of the past is what is then very much by contrast played up um, and made the chief source of retrospective uh, appeal. So through distinctions like that, um, we can see that uh, nostalgia isn't simply innately conservative or with an emphasis solely on, on pathos. That's a gross oversimplification. Um, and nostalgia can have many different diverse uh, manifestations and be given many different um, uh, forms of expression and representation. Now in relation to song and music, certain, I know I'm, I'm, I'm in danger of generalisation here, but certain uh, genres uh, or areas of music seem to um, foster or be expressive conveyances of nostalgia more, more than others. So for example, um, from the fields of Ath and Rye to Thousands of Sailing, Irish uh, popular music often seems to be redolent with those three components of nostalgia, loss, lack and longing. Um, perhaps primarily because a lot of Irish music is associated with the experience of exile and emigration. Another example from the uh, mid-19th century onwards is the uh, genre of Portuguese fado. That's been strongly associated with those three components of, uh, of nostalgia, manifested in people longed for or places uh, keenly missed, whether it's because those people are away at sea or because the contemporary city is haunted by the city of the past. In both those cases, um, nostalgia is, is never uniform. It varies from one song uh, to another. So that with uh, Fardo, for instance, among other things, um, it can convey a critical form of nostalgia in its expression of uh, what's been called a sorrow that is almost hope and in its uh, sense of a, an alternative future of the past. And the final example I want to give you of, of critical uh, nostalgia 
um, is um, Blind Alfred Reed and his most famous song, How Can a Poor Man Stand at Such Times and Live? Reed was um, an early 20th century West Virginia um, uh, singer and songwriter and fiddle player. And his songs show both a conservative attitude on the one hand, but also um, uh, a desire to, to protest against uh, what in his time were current social ills and uh, injustices as he saw them, and to look ahead to, to better times. And this is uh, his song. I'll just play the first two verses. attentively and if you've got any um, questions or comments or suggestions I'd be very open to them. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.